Welcome to the Positive Productivity Podcast, Episode 478. The Positive Productivity Podcast was created to empower entrepreneurs to achieve and appreciate personal and professional success. I'm your host, Kim Sutton, and if you're ready, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome back to another episode of Positive Productivity. This is your host, Kim Sutton, and I'm so happy that you're here to join us today. And also joining us is Matt Dix, author, teacher, and storyteller from the Wolcott School and MatthewDix.com. Matthew, welcome. I'm so happy to have you. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. I would love if you would give yourself better justice. That's not how it should have come out. But introduce yourself to the listeners because you know your story better than anybody else does. Oh, all right. Well, I always like to lead with that. I'm a father of two because uh, that is the bulk of my work, I feel, some days uh-huh. uh, and a husband. Uh, but when I'm not husbanding and fathering, I'm a elementary school teacher. So I've been doing that for 20 years. And I'm also a writer. I'm a novelist of uh, four novels right now and a couple more on the way, as well as my first book of nonfiction, uh, a book on storytelling. I write columns for magazines and newspapers, and I'm a storyteller. So I stand on stages now all over the world and tell stories to audiences and teach storytelling to just about every human being you could imagine or every type of human being you could imagine. So I, I stay busy. Uh, yeah. So I have to ask, I mean, I know you have summer vacation, I if do. you want to call it that, because <laughs> I know what it's like to have your kids at home. And then you have your business. But how do you make time for self care in the midst of everything else that you're doing? And how do you make time to write without getting burnt out? Well, I mean, I always make the choice that when my son asks me to wrestle with him or my daughter asks me to, you know, color or read or go outside with her, I always say yes, no matter what. And so that way I'm making sure that my kids always have as much time as they need and that often translates into as much time as I need with them. You know, I I do a lot of the work that I do with my wife. We run our business together. So when it comes to storytelling, we're both working on things at the same time. Uh, I make sure that I make plenty of time for my friends, but that often means golf at 5.30 in the morning with four guys who are like me, who like to get out early and get things done. So I've surrounded myself with similar types of people so that, you know, I really do have plenty. Sorry, my cat just came in the room. (laughs) (laughs) We were just, listeners, we were just talking about this and and sorry, Matt, got to pick on you for a second. I was saying how I usually mute while my guest is talking just because my cats are the one who will misbehave. Yeah, I had my door closed and my cat literally opened the door and walked into the room. It was unbelievable. <laughs> so uh, along with being an elementary school teacher, you've taught your cat some mad tricks. Yeah, I actually, I've never seen him do that before in my life. It was pretty astounding. <laughs> but I spend a lot of time with the cats as well. Uh-huh. But basically, I've filled my life with people who sort of think like me and operate like me. And I just make sure that in terms of self-care, those things come first and everything else comes afterwards. Incredible. Thank you so much for sharing. So tell us a story about how you and your wife launched Speak Up. What inspired it and what do you do? 
Well, I started telling stories for The Moth, which is a, a large storytelling organization throughout the country. Uh, it's true stories told on stage without notes about yourself. I went in 2011 to start doing that just on a dare, really. One of my friends told me I would be good at it, and I was sort of terrified about the prospect and sort of tried to weasel my way out of it and eventually agreed to tell one story and then never tell another story again. And then I ended up on stages all over the world, so my friend was right. But in 2013, I had been doing it for about two years, and I was driving back and forth to Boston and New York quite a bit. I live in Connecticut, so I'm sort of equidistant to those two cities. And it occurred to me that there's just nothing happening where I live. You know, the thing that I love doesn't actually happen anywhere my friends or family can see it. So it was a Wednesday morning. It was a snow day in February. And I looked up from my wife and I said, you know, maybe we should start storytelling here in Connecticut. And she just absentmindedly said, yeah, sure, you should go ahead and do that. And I had gotten the name of a venue that, you know, someone said might be interested in doing storytelling. So I called them up immediately because I, I just think like you should jump on those things quickly because it's too easy to put things off. And the guy on the other end of the phone who runs the place, that's an art and theater space, said, well, it's a snow day here too. So why don't you come in and, you know, we'll talk about it. And by the time I left, I had a date for a show and I had a venue. I didn't have a name for our organization yet. I didn't actually have any storytellers, but I had two months to pull all that together. And, you know, ideally what we thought we would end up with was a couple times a year, 30 or 40 of our friends would come together and tell stories. And on that first night uh, in April of 2013, we put out about 40 chairs thinking they would be filled. And we ended up with about 150 people show up. So we were off and running from that point on. I just so, got goosebumps. Yeah, it was really, I mean, it was amazing. You know, it, it's one of those wonderful things where you don't expect goodness to come and really greatness comes instead. Hmm. And so we've been producing shows since then. We've never sought out a venue. They've always come to us, which is wonderful. We make sure we produce a great show wherever we are. And so we've been doing it ever since. And then in 2015, people started asking me to teach them to tell stories. They, you know, teach us what you're doing on stage. And at first I didn't want to do that either. I told them I teach kids during the day. I don't like adults. But eventually I agreed, like storytelling, I'd teach one workshop and then I'd never teach another one again. And I taught that one workshop in a library. And it turns out I loved helping people tell stories. I loved hearing their stories and helping them find the best way to tell them. And ever since then, now I literally travel the country teaching any person you could imagine, any type of person you could imagine to tell stories, whether it's an organization or an individual. So it's become a big part of our life in a very short period of time. Matt, I'm not sure if you're aware, but I know listeners are aware that I have chronic idea disorder. It's a book that I've been trying to get out of my head for years now. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So I get ideas all the time. And yes. my problem is actually that I start too many right away and then I don't finish. I'm going to push back on that and say that's not a problem, Kim. I think that's a glorious thing to have, actually. I think you should embrace that. Well, I it's, a, it's a marvelous gift to have because I have all these ideas. I just want to see one get completed, though, and go out. I mean, more <laughs> than one. Because, yeah. you know, when they're stuck on my computer and never launch, then they can't bless the world with whatever they were intended to do. Right? Right. Yeah. But the reason why I brought that up, actually, is because the day that this episode is scheduled to release and go live... Let me see. I forgot what day that is. And I, I, you're a podcaster. 
too. So I hate to timestamp, but there's a reason why I'm sharing this. So the date this is supposed to go live is September 12th, 2018. And on that day, I will actually be at New Media Summit hosted by Steve Ulsher, which is an event where 150 participants, they're called, who want to get on podcasts are pitching to a panel of 40 icons, podcasters, as well as the whole audience. And the reason I bring this up is because they have a two minute pitch window. And I'm just thinking, oh my gosh, I need to introduce you to this whole group because so many struggle with their story. And I know that we're only talking about two minutes here, but there's a lot that can be done in two minutes. I got to tell you, I mean, we're recording about three weeks before. I just learned that the icons are pitching too. This is episode 478. You know, you would think I would be comfortable with speaking by now, (laughs) but I'm over here like shaking in my chair, like, oh my gosh, what am I going to say in two minutes? (laughs) I mean, I'll tell you that most stories are about two minutes long. I mean, not the ones, not the ones I perform on stage, but when I'm teaching people storytelling, I'm not necessarily teaching for the stage. You know, that might be a place they end up eventually, but we just tell stories in our lives all the time about the things that are happening to us. And Sadly, we often tell them very poorly. I think the world is sort of a terribly uninteresting place quite often just because people don't understand what to say or how to say it. And if we really look at how we communicate in our everyday lives, we tell stories that tend to be somewhere between 30 seconds to two minutes long. So that is sort of the average length of a story in the real world, at least. So, so you're right. You, you can communicate a great deal of information in two minutes. When you said that, that I mean, and I know I'm bad about telling stories. I mean, I told you right in our pre-chat and listeners, you've heard me confess this before too. I get excited. I put lots of thoughts on to each other. And it's almost like those people, me included, who try to tell a joke and mess the whole thing up. So by the time you get to the punchline, it's like, right? Right. Is there any better way to describe it than just, well, I'm I wonder happy. how the mic will pick that up. Right. I'm happy to report that I have taken truly, truly terrible storytellers, you know, really people that no one has ever wanted to listen to, and I've turned them into very effective storytellers. It doesn't take much to learn how to craft a story a little better than what you're doing now. Would you mind sharing a couple tips? Sure. Yeah, of course. I mean, the mistake that most people make about storytelling is they think that a story is things that happen to me in chronological order. So this, and then this, and then this. You know, the classic example is a vacation story. If someone comes back from their vacation and they say, let me tell you what happened in Bermuda, that's not really a story. Actually, no one's ever wanted to hear the next sentence of that story. You know, nobody cares what you did on vacation, unless while you're on vacation, something happened. Uh, You know, I say that a story is a moment about transformation or realization. You either change in some small fundamental way or your mind is changed. You think about something in a new way or you think about yourself in a new way or, you know, another human being, your mind has been changed. And so those are the things we have to tell stories about. Most of the time, people don't tell those things. They just tell what happened during the day, even if what happened during the day is not terribly interesting. And the truth is we have these moments of realization or transformation all the time We just don't see them. And then if we happen to see one of these moments where our heart is moved or our mind is changed, we note it for what it is, and then we discard it like trash, like it doesn't mean anything, when really that's what we need to be talking about. 
So even more important than learning to craft a story is to understand what people actually want to hear, what they crave. You know, what they crave is an authenticity, a vulnerability, a willingness to say, I was one thing, but now I am another. And that doesn't necessarily need to be a positive thing. It can be, I used to think I was pretty great, but I discovered one day I'm pretty terrible. That's actually an excellent story that people really adore, that form of a story. So the first part is just finding what to say, finding a moment of true meaning, something that people are going to want to hear. You've got me thinking now. You're in <laughs> Connecticut, yeah? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever been to the Stanford train metro station? Is that what it's called? Yeah, my wife actually fell down a set of stairs there and got a bad concussion once. Yes, I've been there. Oh, my gosh. Well, I woke up in the train yard at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> that was have- what taught me that I needed to not drink as much as I did. <laughs> well, there you go. So there's a moment of transformation, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just had to practice because that's a much better way of telling the story than saying, than starting at the beginning and telling how it happened in chronological order. Well, it doesn't mean you can't tell it in chronological order. I mean, the next tip I'll give you is that the secret to storytelling, once you've figured out what your story is going to be, a moment of transformation or realization, is you got to figure out sort of the best starting and ending place. And I'll mm-hmm. tell you that the ending place is probably the moment you open your eyes in the train yard yep. and realize, I have to stop drinking. Yep. But the beginning of the story is always going to be an approximation of the opposite of the end. And that's how transformation or realization happens. It's the way movies always work, too. Mm -hmm. A character starts as one person and then ends as the opposite of that person. So if at the end of your story, you're in the train yard and you open your eyes and realize, I need to stop drinking so much, the beginning of your story has to start somewhere where you think your drinking is fine or even better than fine. Like, it's fantastic. This is, I am my authentic self when I drink or I have a great time when I'm drinking. You have to begin us in a place where you don't see drinking as a problem at all so that you can end us in a place where you finally see drinking for what it is. And then you have a story. Absolutely. It can be be told chronologically, but one of the things, one of the beauties of that is now you don't end up throwing a lot of extra stuff into that story because it's going to be a story that is all about you going from drinking to not drinking or your idea of drinking being one thing to your new idea being another thing. And anything that doesn't sort of follow along that line and serve that purpose. You take those things out of your story and suddenly your stories are going to be shorter, tighter. They're going to make a lot more sense to people. Mm. Listeners, by the way, I just want to fill you in. I'm 39 now. That was when I was 22. So (laughs) (laughs) I learned my lesson, thankfully. Yeah. That's the beauty of storytelling. You can tell things that you've done, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, 20 years ago, and people will forgive you for any of your past indiscretions if the story is good. Yeah. Yeah. I just had to tell you, Matt, that I ended up having to take a $60 cab ride to New Rochelle, where I didn't know the address of the friend's house that I was staying at. And I had to tell the cab driver to drive around until he found something I recognized. (laughs) (laughs) That's a movie moment, I have to say. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Costly, fun mistake. I was an interior designer in Manhattan and there was a carpet vendor was throwing a party and a coworker and I decided that we were going to try a taste of every drink on the menu. Uh. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was free. We thought we'd do it. Bad idea. Right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But you learn. You have a good story. Oh yeah, definitely. So who are your favorite people or organizations to work with? Do you have a favorite? In terms of storytelling? Yeah. I mean, The Moth is the greatest of all storytelling organizations in the world. 
It's run by a group of amazing people, almost exclusively women, actually. The boss of the moth sort of is Catherine Burns, and it was founded by an author named George Dawes Green, who's still affiliated with it. And it's just a remarkable group of people. It's a nonprofit, and they are dedicated to getting as many people on a stage as possible to share their truth and have an opportunity to speak to audiences in a way that really wasn't available to people for a very long time and in a lot of places still isn't available. There are certain places in this country where it is very hard to stand on a stage and share a truth about yourself if your community, let's say, does not accept that truth. But the Moth is an open place where everyone is welcome. And so it's an organization that I love telling stories for. I've had the pleasure of traveling the country with them and telling stories. So I can't speak enough about that organization. It really is the, it's what we modeled Speak Up after when we began our own organization. Is MOTH an acronym? I'm sort of, well, I'm not sort of, I'm very intrigued by the name. No, MOTH is, um, George Dawes Green, the founder of the MOTH, he used to live on an island off the coast of Georgia. And he would get together in the evenings with his friend Wanda and some others on a screened porch and tell stories. And the moths would come through the little cracks in the screens, and they would be the the audience of that storytelling. And so when George moved to New York City, he discovered quickly that nobody really wanted to listen to one another. They just waited for the spaces in between conversations so they could tell their own stories. So he wanted to create a space where one person would speak and everyone else would listen and sort of recreate that porch he had in Georgia. And so it began in a living room. He had a moth event one night, which apparently did not go very well, but his friend said, we, you know, we agree it didn't go well, but uh, we think you have something here. You should continue trying. And so the moth was the name he chose because of his first audience, which was, you know, little flying creatures that were listening to the stories of his and Wanda's and everyone else in Georgia. Wow. And listen to how you just told that story. <laughs> well, that's a story that I've been told. I, I only take credit for repeating it. <laughs> yeah, but uh, let me tell you, I can be the worst at repeating stories. Yeah, my cat. It's, it's just like cat. jokes. Can you hear my cat again? He's being bad. He literally has a cup on his head right now, but he's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so, All right. I have had a cat give birth to kittens in the middle of an episode. Listeners, you can go listen to Christina Jones. I have had cats hang themselves in... <laughs> And window blinds, because they were trying to get flies. No, they did not die. But in the middle, you can hear, like, them just stuck. And then I have kids who chime in during podcast episodes, too. Listeners, tomorrow's the first day of school. I am truly the one that is singing, it's the most wonderful time of the year. I can't wait. (laughs) And so I had to ask, how do you feel about the school year coming back up? Are you excited to get back to your students? Or do you have sort of the dread of, well, okay, you can plead the fifth on this. But I know that taking, I can imagine that getting you away from a business that you hopefully love and going back into your job might be a little bit of mixed emotion. Well, I always say I love my job. You know, I am very, very lucky to be an elementary school teacher. It's what I wanted to do when I was a little kid. So I love it. I just say I love vacation always more, or I love the summer more. So, you know, this is the last week of vacation for me, and it's my toughest week of the year because I get to spend so much time with my children and my wife. And next week, I know I'm going to spend a lot of time with other people's children. And they're going to be lovely, but they're just never quite as lovely as my own. So it's a little challenging. You know, it's a little difficult. 
But, you know, all those other things that I'm doing, they don't stop. They just kind of uh, slow down a little bit and I figure out ways to make them happen while I'm teaching. So, so that's not a problem. It's just really the time away from my kids and my wife in a regular schedule that I sort of, it's a hard thing for me. Yeah. Actually, it's funny that you say regular schedule because I feel like summer and school vacations are the most irregular schedule. Yeah, they really are. I mean, I worked more this summer, to be completely honest, than I ever work teaching. I had a book come out, and I just had a lot of other jobs, let's say, that I had to do. So there were many, many days this summer when I said I was going to work. But every day that work was a little different, and I could be more flexible with my time quite often. So all of those things are really nice, so I can fit my kids in a lot more and just enjoy them more than I can during the school year. I want to circle back around to what you said about when your son asks you to wrestle or when your daughter wants you to play with her. I was just actually telling my husband yesterday or the day before that I feel like my kids are going to remember me by my saying, just give me one minute. (laughs) And I feel really bad. Right. And the reason why I asked about that earlier is because when I'm in the middle of writing and I do all my own content writing, I feel like if I don't get that one thought that I had in my head out right then, that I'm going to lose it. So that's why I'm afraid if I have a headstone, my husband knows I don't want to be buried. If I have a headstone, it's going to say, just give me one more minute. That would be pretty funny, though, on a headstone, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would be great. I like that. Give me one more minute alive or something. I don't know what I could do in that, but I'd imagine a lot. Yeah, I mean, I understand the concern. I mean, one of the tricks that I've learned over the years, I don't remember which writer taught me this, but to stop sentences in the middle of the sentence instead of the end, and that helps you sort of get back into the flow. Really? Yeah, if you stop at the end of a paragraph, you really stop at the end of a thought. And then you have to find a new thought to launch the next time. And so if you stop in the middle of a paragraph or the middle of the sentence, you're stopping in the middle of a thought, and you can just pick it up again when you return a lot easier. You pick the thread up. So that's always helpful. But for me, you know, I try never to say just a minute because I really want my kids to always remember me as the father who was the person who saw them as a priority. And it is true that there are times when I'm writing and I I say to myself, like, just give me a minute, like, please let me finish this. And I'm more likely to say that to my wife than I am to my kids. But I know I'm going to get back to it. You know, I know the words are waiting for me. They're somewhere in my head. And if it's not those words, I'll make them the ones that come next better than the ones that I had to stop. So I just make sure I look at Charlie and I look at Clara and I say, which is more important? You know, and I have editors breathing down my neck at times who really want these books that are due and things like that. But, you know, in the end, it's those kids that are going to be really important because childhood is fleeting. They're getting older very quickly. And pretty soon I'm going to be in an empty house with all the time in the world to write and wishing that they were here. (laughs) Oh my gosh, you're so right. My oldest daughter just turned five yesterday and she wore a tiara to school today. (laughs) Yeah, She got it for her birthday and insisted that she wear it to daycare. Yeah, And just looking at her walk out the door in her tiara, whatever. Yeah. I was like, oh, I remember. Thank you, Facebook, for reminding me all the, or showing me all those pictures from the past. But I remember when she couldn't even walk. Right. Yeah. It goes quick. Yeah. Would you mind sharing a little bit about your journey as an author? Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things I like to tell people is I've been writing every single day of my life since I was 17. And I didn't publish my, and that's like without an exaggeration, every single day of my life I wrote. And I didn't publish my first novel till I was 34. So that means it took me 17 years of practice. So I'm not very smart, clearly, because it took me 17 years to learn to do something. And I know it doesn't take most people that long to do it. So if I can do it, anybody can do it. But I basically, I was writing 
ever since uh, high school, I met a teacher who sort of convinced me that I could be a writer someday. And I, I had no other dreams. And I got kicked out of my house when I was 18 and had no chance at college initially. I didn't think I'd ever get to college. Eventually, I ended up homeless and um, actually in jail. So, you know, I knew my path wasn't going to be a clean one, but I knew I could always write. No matter where I was, no matter what was happening to me, I could always be writing. So my dream was to be a novelist. I, I always told people I wanted to write for a living and teach for pleasure. And so I tried writing for a very long time novels, and none of the novels were good. I was able to write nonfiction and, you know, articles on the very earliest versions of the Internet. I was writing uh, articles on those and pieces for people. But I, I sort of figured out that maybe fiction wasn't going to be for me as much as I wanted to do it. And I quit on it, to be honest with you, for a while. After college, I tried to write novels, and none of them were good. And I knew enough to know they weren't good. And then one day, I went to Boca Raton with my wife to visit her Nana for the first time. And it was in Boca Raton on a Wednesday night when Nana left us alone in her apartment. She was sort of 85 going on 55. She was dating guys and going to college. Amazing. Class. Yes, it's incredible. <laughs> uh, and she drove. So that meant she picked us up at the airport. So when she left us on this Wednesday night in this house without Wi-Fi or cable TV, she went out for a date with a guy named Joe who was in the ICU unit at the local hospital and then to an opera class. She left us uh, without a car. So I was stuck in her in her home with nothing to do. And for the first time in my life, I had an idea for a book, or at least what I thought was a short story, but I didn't have all the things that I had been taught to use to write, like a whiteboard with post-it notes to plan the story out, you know, to character maps, all of these things that I thought were required by writers. I had nothing at my fingertips other than my computer. So for the first time in my life without a plan, I started writing what I thought would be a short story. And it ended up being my first novel. And it really was that evening, the first time I ever felt like I was writing in the way that I was supposed to be writing, which is to say, I just write and watch the things happen on the page as they come off my fingers, which it turns out to be many, many writers write this way. I just had no idea at the time. And so that was in 2007. And my goal was to write a book. And I said to myself, I'll write a book. And if it never sells, that's okay, because most people say they want to write a book and don't. And so I will already be better than all of those people if I actually manage to accomplish that goal. And then everything after that, I decided would be gravy. So if I managed to self-publish, that'd be amazing. And if I find a tiny publisher and I print 500 copies, that'll be amazing. And, you know, ultimately that dream came true. I found a, you know, I, I published with Doubleday that first novel and took off from wow. there. But it all just started with the idea that I'm going to take one tiny step at a time and everything will be gravy after, you know, once it's out of my control, once I'm done writing the book, then it's sort of in other people's hands as well. You know, I can't control everything at that point. Then I'll just hope for the best. That's amazing. So I sat down last weekend or the weekend before to write what I thought was just going to be a short lead magnet for yep. my company. And all of a sudden, the next thing I know, I look at the word count. And it's like 9,000 words, multiple <laughs> chapters. Yeah. And it's not the book that I've been telling listeners I was going to write, which was Chronic Idea Disorder. It's turned into something completely different. And I'm excited about it. I do want to ask, when you have editors breathing down your throat or your publisher or your agent waiting for stuff, is it harder to write under pressure for you? No. Because I just kind of ignore them. I mean, <laughs> awesome. You know, I don't want to be the person who's late, and I'm very rarely late because I know that, you know, my next sale depends upon how effective I am, you know, delivering the book on time. But 
you know, if I deliver an outstanding book two weeks late, or I deliver something less than outstanding on time, I understand how that's going to impact me. And so I deliver things late if necessary, but just make damn sure that it's outstanding. I also know that everybody wants things before they actually need them. I've come to discover this in all of life, basically. People give you a date earlier than when they actually need it for almost everything. And I do it too when I'm working with storytellers and I say, I need your bio by this time and your photo by this time and your rough draft by this time. It's always way before I actually need it because I know that people are late all the time. So I'm adjusting constantly. So that's how I handle that. Now there's a kid knocking on my door. Come in. What do you want? Remember, you better be bleeding if you're opening this door. What? <laughs> what? I'm in the middle of an interview. What? Listeners, I just want to thank you for enjoying positive productivity. And while we are waiting to hear about bleeding fingers or whatever's going on, I want to encourage you to go visit the show notes page at thekimsutton.com forward slash PP478 and leave an aha that you have gathered during the course of this episode. Again, it's thekimsutton.com forward slash PP478. Sorry. You don't need to apologize. What you don't realize is that while I was muted, while you were telling that story, my husband came home from the grocery and the dog started going crazy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's better on the mute button than I am. She literally wanted to come in and give me a kiss on the head. That was oh, where she- that's so amazing. No, that's terrible. She should not disrupt me for a kiss on the head. <laughs> I will be disrupted anytime for a kiss on the head from yeah. my kids or my husband. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was on a mastermind call one day, video mastermind call, and we're just talking, talking, talking. All the It was a group of ladies, and one of them is in the hot seat, and all of a sudden I see a whole bunch of eyebrows raise, and I look in the screen. And my husband didn't realize I was on a video call. He had just gotten out of the shower and walked into the room with just his towel on. (laughs) Well, at least he had a towel on. (laughs) Yes. Yes. However, on that note, my first client was one. Oh, here's another cat story for you. Following a Skype interview where two of my cats started going at it, and I don't mean fighting, on screen right above my shoulder in the middle of my living room. I was in an apartment. They decided to do it right in the middle of the living room floor right behind me. That's delightful. Yeah. Cats and kids. Gotta love them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Matt, what are you most excited about for the next 90 days? Well, this is going to sound crazy. I went to a a show yesterday in New York called Color Factory. My wife surprised us with tickets. I had no idea what it was. It was opening. It's basically this museum exploration dealing with color, and it's built for kids and for adults. It was really wonderful. And I had this moment, they had this interactive display where you sit at a booth and through a glass window, there's a person sitting on the other side in an identical booth. And basically it's a drawing activity where it says like, look at the person's eyes and you're looking into a stranger's eyes. And then it says, draw her eyes and guess what color her, her favorite color is and draw the color that you think her spirit is. And it was really, it was about 10 minutes that I spent staring into a stranger's face and she spent staring into mine it was really powerful for me. So it has nothing to do with my writing or my storytelling, really. I left that booth and I told my wife, I want to do an installation. I want to be an artist who creates an installation where instead of art there, it's going to be sort of storytelling. So you sit across from a stranger and you're prompted with headphones, as I was that day, with questions like, what's the name of your mother? Write down your mother's name and share it with the stranger on the other side. 
and then write down the most beautiful thing about your mother and share that or write down the thing that made it really difficult to love your mother at times, you know, and, you know, just moving on from mother to other things. I just I had this idea that I could get people to, like, connect with strangers and cry. And that really excited me. So over the next 90 days, in addition to the books that I'm writing and publishing and the stories I'm telling and school starting, I'm going to be looking into a way to create an installation so that I can do this with human beings and see what the results are, which is what I constantly do, which is generate brand new ideas and then throw myself into them with all of my energy possible at all times, which is kind of crazy, but it makes my life very interesting. So that's actually the odd thing that I'm most excited about over the next 90 days. That sounds absolutely amazing. It sounds like speed storytelling slash connecting, but just in an artful, beautiful way. Yeah, I just thought that for me, it was very powerful to stare into a stranger's eyes and contemplate what might be beyond those eyes. And it was only contemplating in terms of color and shape. And so I thought, why don't we go deeper and really like talk to another stranger in a meaningful way about something that touches our heart and see what happens, which is essentially what storytelling is on a much larger scale. You know, I stand in front of a thousand people, so I can't really stare into a single person's eyes. So I love this idea. So I'm excited about that. I mean, I have a couple novels coming out in the next six months, so I'm pretty excited about that. And a school starting is always exciting. So I have a lot of things on my horizon, but that's my new idea. I always try to have a new difficult idea that I'm tackling. Oh, I love it. So I have a couple quick questions for you that are not related, because you just inspired me off of this, but it's not color. How did you meet your wife? My wife was teaching two doors down from me. She's also an elementary school teacher. Uh, when we met, we were both with other people, and uh, those relationships came to an end, and we became friends. For about a year, we were just friends, and that friendship eventually grew and developed. And I mean, I loved her right from the start because she's she's just amazing. She was the kind of girl who I looked and thought, boy, if I wasn't me, I'd go after a girl like that, but I could never get that girl's. I just was happy she was actually my friend. I couldn't believe that like Alicia Green was my friend. And then, you know, we started having those phone conversations that went till two o'clock in the morning. And then I started to think it's not possible. She can't really like me. Like maybe she just has lots of two o'clock in the morning conversations with friends. But one day we went for a hike and on the way down the mountain, she reached out and held my hand and I thought she was slipping sort of on the hard scrabble. And I looked down and it occurred to me, she's not slipping at all. She's just holding my hand. I can't believe it. Alicia Green is holding my hand. And that was it. Aww. Yeah, we fell in love very quickly after that. What was the most recent book that you've read or that you're reading now that's not yours? I am in the middle of Daryl Hammond's uh, memoir. He's a comedian who is on Saturday Night Live. And he reads it himself. And I love it. He says a lot of really smart things. I actually wrote down recently, he was talking about, really in terms of productivity, he's a guy who can do impressions. He used to be the person who did the Bill Clinton impressions on SNL. I remember that, yeah. And his thought was, he was really failing for a long time in comedy. He actually joined Saturday Night Live when he was 40, which is extremely like late in life to start comedy successfully. But his approach was, one day he realized that if he could make every impression a tiny, tiny, tiny bit better every day, eventually over time, those impressions would improve. So every day he looked to, even if it was just like, I'm going to learn how to do the the nasal of the, the way that person says the letter I, 
when they're talking in the past tense, like really specific things. But he understood incrementalism, the idea that we can make tiny changes over time and they will result in something wonderful. So I love that. But I mean, he's also, he talks about addiction and he talks about the inner workings of SNL and lots of things on creativity that I adore. So I'm about three quarters of the way through that book and I'm really loving it right now. I didn't even know that he had a a memoir. So thank you for sharing. Yeah, I think it's pretty new, to be honest with you. I'm a big fan of all the comedians' memoirs because so many of them, their memoirs tend to be about struggle and creativity. And Mm -hmm. those are two things that I'm drawn to. Mm -hmm. I just had a brain fart. (laughs) Um, (laughs) What was the first podcast that you ever listened to? That's a hard one because I was one of the earliest adopters to podcasting, to be honest with you. I mean, This American Life, I know that came pretty early and you know it was one of the first. There used to be a podcast called something like Stuff You Don't Know, I think it was called. I remember listening to that while moving out of my first apartment with my then fiance, now wife. But as soon as I discovered what a podcast was, I was listening to them. And for a long time, you know, if you got in early on podcasting for a long, long time, you had to explain to every human being what a podcast was, even today. And how to download it because it wasn't as simple as getting a nap. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. I often was taking people's phones and just doing it for them so that it would just appear on their phones. Even today, you know, I tell people we, I produce a storytelling podcast and another one with a sociologist. And when I do it, they say, what's a podcast? Like a lot of the older folks still haven't figured it out quite yet. But I was on board very early on with some of the earliest podcasts there were. My first was The Bitterest Pill by Dan Class. Oh, I don't know that podcast. Yeah, I know I, I believe I started listening to it in 2008, 2009. And he was, he was a high school friend of my brother's. And then my brother started a podcast, so I was listening to that in 2009, and once in a while, my brother's feed will pop back up in my subscription <laughs> list, even though the yep. podcast isn't around anymore. Right. Yeah. What is your uh, guilty pleasure? It's probably ice cream. <laughs> what my flavor? Wife, uh, cookie dough, usually. Mm. I, my wife and I often eat ice cream for dinner. Uh, we take the kids out for ice cream around 5 o'clock, and we consider it dinner. And it is for us. We just That's all we eat. And then around seven o'clock is we're telling the kids they need to start thinking about getting ready for bed. They say, you haven't fed us dinner yet. And it occurs to us, oh, they have to eat real food, whereas we <laughs> eat ice cream for dinner. But I'll eat ice, I eat ice cream a lot. When I was a kid, I used to say to myself, I'm going to eat ice cream for breakfast when I'm an adult. And now a couple times a year, that's what I do. I think it's important for us to think back on the dreams of our childhood because they were the best dreams we had. And I think sometimes we just discard them or forget about them. And so I'm always trying to think about when I was a kid, what did I want to do? Because I think as adults, we don't do them. So I'm always finding those things like eating ice cream for breakfast. So a couple of times a year, I go to a local place that serves breakfast, but it's an ice cream place. So they have ice cream available and I get an enormous hot fudge sundae before work. And that's what I eat for breakfast. And it is a joyous thing to do. I just want to thank you. (laughs) I think of all the People, I mean, you're the first person I've ever asked, what's your guilty pleasure? But I've had so many conversations lately, which have been talking about how sugar is bad, you know, how well you have to eat healthy. Uh, at about 11.30 last night, I was craving McDonald's French fries. I, get oh, I was at McDonald's this morning. I had an Egg McMuffin for breakfast mm. this morning. <laughs> right when I was thinking about going to get it, though, it was like torrential downpour. I was like, oh. Uh. 
So, yeah. But thank you for sharing. And by the way, if you're ever in Dayton, Ohio, and go to Kroger grocery store, uh-huh. their generic brand of ice cream has a flavor called Brookie, which is brownie, cookie dough, and chocolate ice cream. It's uh, my favorite. It's absolutely amazing. And it's not like, it's like you can get a half gallon for $1.50. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. I'm a fan. We eat quite a bit of ice cream over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just have to be judicious. You just have to skip dinner and then you can eat the ice cream. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. I hear you nutritionist shaking your head, but that's okay. We'll yeah. enjoy the ice cream while you're enjoying your spinach. Right, exactly. Yeah. And then you can scold me later when you come on the podcast. But, well, Matt, I just want to thank you for this just delightful chat. It's been amazing. You've got me. I love the thought about stopping sentences halfway through. It's sort of like stopping a bike when you're halfway down the hill. Because if you stop at the bottom, I don't know how you're going to get back up again. Yeah. So, yeah, I like that. That's good. I like that. Um, That's a good analogy. I'm going to use that. I'm stealing it. Yeah, please do. Because that is going to be helping me so much. I don't know what I'm going to say. I, I might come up with a four letter word in my head that I say to myself instead of one more minute, but I'm going to start stopping sentences halfway through. Yeah. Yeah. I support that. I always remind people that there were soldiers in World War One wearing gas masks and being shot at while hiding in trenches trying to write novels. So every time someone tells me that like they need to wait for their sabbatical or they can only write in Starbucks or they need an hour at a time to be productive... I remind them that like literally there were soldiers in trenches being fired at trying to write novels. So don't, you know, all of the excuses that people make are just excuses and they should just dig in and start writing. Even if it's, even if it's five minutes before your kid's going to bother you, those five minutes can be meaningful minutes where you can write three good sentences. And that's wonderful. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I wrote those 9,000 words with all five kids in the house over two days. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. And one of them is potty training. (laughs) that's an enormous chore (laughs) yeah so don't tell me people that you don't have time (laughs) i agree that excuse does not work in my book actually i might have to go in the book now (laughs) (laughs) where can listeners find you online connect with you get to know more and all that great stuff uh well if they go to matthewdix.com they can find all of my content i mean you can buy my books wherever books are sold or on amazon Uh, My wife and I produce a podcast called Speak Up Storytelling, and that's a podcast where we play a story that we've recorded over the last five years of our shows, you know, someone else's story, and then we talk about that story. We critique it. We talk about what's working well and what's not, so you get some entertainment and some education in the process. And then I produce a podcast called Boy vs. Girl, where a sociologist and myself, we talk about gender topics. We sort of like explore the world of gender stereotypes. So you can find those on, you know, the usual podcast locations. But if you go to MatthewDix.com, you can basically find links to all of those things and many more things. You said boy versus girl? Yeah. I am so intrigued. Okay, listeners, I have never shared this on the podcast before. My three-year-old son, David the third, he is surrounded, well, he's got a three-year-old twin sister and now a five-year-old sister. So he gets jealous of their princess dresses and their nail polish. And it's such a struggle because we're trying to get him to become invested in the boy stuff, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. While I was writing the book last weekend, his twin sister and him switched clothes. So she put on his like his army ranger stuff and he put on her, her princess dress. And oh, yeah, I had my- to snap pictures. Yeah, my kids do that all the time. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, they love doing that. Yep. Thank you so much again for joining me today. 
Thank you, Kim. It was really a blast, except for my daughter coming in and my cat being a little crazy. I thought it was a lot of fun. Oh, it was fun for me, even with your daughter coming in and your cat. <laughs> I want to know how your cat opened up the door. I'm very curious. I am too. And I know the listeners did, or I know the listeners appreciated even those as well. <laughs> hey, we're all human. We can't expect everything to be perfect all the time. Absolutely. Do you have a parting piece of advice or a golden nugget that you can share with listeners? Well, I'll tell you that people often ask me advice on storytelling. That's the thing I get the most and how to find stories because it seems like I have a million and they don't. And I always say what we really need to do in our lives is to open up spaces for other people to tell stories. If you listen really carefully to the world, you'll hear people say things like, oh, that happened to me once. And they trail off because they. so many people are under the impression we don't want to hear their stories or that we don't um, have the time to hear their stories. You know, as a white straight American male, I know that I have many opportunities to open my big mouth and talk. You know, I'm just afforded a privilege that a lot of people aren't afforded or don't feel they have that privilege. And so I spend my life asking people to tell me stories. And as a result, I get to hear stories and I get to be reminded about my own stories. So if you can just be a person who makes space for others to speak, I think that's a beautiful thing. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Positive Productivity Podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I'm supporting six to seven figure business coaches with their marketing automation and entrepreneurs like you through my coaching and mastermind programs. I want to invite you to visit thekimsutton.com to learn how I can help you take your business to the next level.